Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. This is episode 78 of the Event Horizon. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello. And we have a very special guest today. Our guest is none other than Bill Schultz, the producer of The Simpsons. And the incipient uh, producer of Jimmy Stones. We feel very privileged to be here at the dawn of the next big thing, as I believe this is going to be. Right. You, you, were, you can say you were here mm-hmm. before. So imagine if you could roll the clock back 25 years and interview the producer of The Simpsons before the first Simpsons aired. And then being able to roll the clock forward 25 years and saying, I remember when I interviewed the guy who created The Simpsons, something like that. Well, you can still interview him, but... Yeah, yeah. It's not the same. (laughs) It's not the same. Well, you you were, you know, here, you get to take a little bit of the credit of saying, you know what, I knew that Jimmy Stones was going to be something. And and it is. Tell us about it. I'll tell you, it would be just, incidentally, it would be even more amazing if you interviewed me 25 years from now, but... Okay, it's a day. It's a, you know, we'll all be grayer. That's okay. Uh, actually, if you notice, that's one of the reasons to do cartoons is the cartoons never get older. Bart is still 10 years old. I recently read something that if you actually aged up The Simpsons appropriately, Bart would now be the same age that Marge was when the show first started. That's hilarious. Wow. And, and baby Maggie would be all, you know, all grown up. That's right. No more. No more. Well, anyhow, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to talk to you. And now that we've all gone on my journey of tangents, <laughs> that's okay. We'll we'll steer the ship of conversation back towards what we came here for. Tell us about Jimmy Stones. Let's let hear about the show itself, and then and then how it came to be. Okay. Well, Jimmy Stones is uh, the creation of a writer by the name of Jim Manos, and he uh, he created this world of uh, cartoon craziness. Uh, it's basically Jimmy Stones at the center of it is a, uh, a former stockbroker who has gone through a bad divorce with the court system, and he, as he claims to the judge, he says, listen, judge, I've, I've been married for four years, and it's been taking me eight to get divorced. He said, don't you think that's kind of fucked up? Oh, excuse my, uh, excuse my language. Are we okay on the language here? Uh, we'd prefer to avoid boobies. Right. We're trying to be safe for work. Family radio. Okay, 
Well, we would beat that in the uh, in the PG version of the show. There we go. I can. I can. But I, w- I was quoting the the script, not my. Ah, okay. Radio. It wasn't, it wasn't my opinion. Okay. <laughs> so anyhow, the 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 thing is, is that Jimmy kind of like many people is is fed up with the system, feels like he can't beat it, and says instead of continuing to fight, I'm just going to drop out. I'm going to check out. I'm going to just get a menial job. I won't be able to pay my ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars a month alimony. Uh, you can't get blood from a stone, and you know it's just not worth it. And so, as he's laying there in the alley drinking his bushmill, which you know, in animation, a glass of booze can just appear from nowhere. He's sitting there drinking, and these two pigeons come up to him and they start proselytizing him and speaking to him. And he's like, you know, these, these birds are talking to me. And so what we come to find out is the animals of New York City, because the show does take place in Manhattan, the animals of New York City are going to be the ones that come up to Jimmy Stones and try to get him to come back to life and try to redeem his outlook on life. So every episode we will find Jimmy Stones, you know, at the beginning, just absolutely giving up, not wanting to give a damn, and... Somewhere along the line, these stories will be a, 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 a turn of redemption. But, of course, by the end of the half hour, we'll probably see Jimmy back where he was before. But there's always hope that next week he will, he will find his way. So th- this world was created by Jim Manos, who is a phenomenal talent. He uh, created Dexter, the Showtime series. He uh, wrote on The Sopranos, wrote on The Shield, uh, and in fact, he wrote one of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos. In fact, many many people's favorite episode, the the episode of College, where where, uh, Tony Soprano takes his daughter up to college and, uh, well, spoiler alert, murders somebody. Um, but it was Spo- a, it, spoiler it, it, alert on a show that's yeah. five years old. I, you Forget know, it. You never know. You never Forget know. about it. Um, and so uh, Jim wrote that episode and actually got an Emmy Award for it, uh, amazingly enough. And uh, so here's a guy who's just writing at the at the highest level of creativity. And as a producer, the thing that you look for the most is somebody who can bring you content and a world and a vision of a world that you know, that they've created almost from whole cloth. And and then basically as you develop the world, they can continue to create. And, and then that's what brings you in as an audience, you know, when you, you feel like it resonates. So some part of you, the this world resonates with some part of you. And uh, Jim Manos is, has got that ability. So uh, we partnered up and we started to develop the property and we created a look and a feel for the the characters. Uh, we wanted a, a world that would be somewhat realistic uh, because we felt like that would be making people have more fun with this, this notion of uh, a squirrel who's, you know, got 12 kids, two jobs, and he messed around on his wife one time and he got rabies. And we have a, a suicidal horse who uh, has a, is a police horse and he just can't stand the fact that there's this big fat cop riding around on him. And <laughs> so, it's a, so we went for a somewhat realistic style, but um, I think that, uh, you know, it's a great time for animation. So we had a lot of things to draw from. Well, it's, 
Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's it's uh, the contrast you're drawing is is a, a strong one between the uh, the details of the real world and and this fantasy life that he has. And uh, is it a fantasy life, or is are the animals really talking? You know what? That, that's a great question because I th- and I think you're the first person to ask that question. Um, and I really wanted to think about that for just a moment. I guess in the world of Jimmy Stones, it's real, but you, I guess you wouldn't, you know, you would be crazy if you started to question, well, you know, has he had one too many? Uh, well, I just thought it was the, the animals were the personification of his internal dialogue. I, well, I think, I think as a creative, uh, piece of work, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I mean, you're dead on, you're both really dead on that, uh, that, that is exactly right. I mean, when, when any of us sit and decide to do something, we always have those voices in our head. And so here, I, I think what, what Jim Manos, the creator came up with was a character who could have this dialogue, but instead of just being voices, it's personified or, uh, animalified, whatever the, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) would be in, in these animals. And, and is it a fantasy? I don't know. Maybe, you know, Who's to say? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a cartoon. It could be either. You know, it's, right. It certainly has the elements of it. I mean, uh, uh, fantasy is is one of the important ways that we hold up a mirror and, and look at ourselves. And uh, uh, and we can do it with far fewer of the, of the restrictions that uh, right. that a normal narrative would force us to. to right. Uh, well, and you can and you could get away with a lot more um, mm-hmm. and sort of. Uh, like I always love to give this example uh, on The Simpsons when Homer Simpson squeezes Bart's neck, chokes it, and his eyes bulge out and his tongue bulges out. It's funny. Uh, if you did that in live <laughs> oh, God, action, no. <laughs> you know, it would be cruel. Uh, sure. You know, and and so likewise with Jimmy Stones, the animals uh, can bring. A, you can you can still have the persona. But you can have fun with how you, you know, there's, there's a, it's on a double level. So one, you can have fun with this, the sort of the, the angst and the storyline that Jimmy's going through in terms of this misery that we call society that we all have to sort of bear. Uh, and then the other is that you could play with sort of, well, we've got a, a, a golden retriever who, you, you know, everybody thinks of a golden retriever as being a happy-go-lucky family pet. Here, Tony the Golden Retriever in Jimmy Stones is is all kinds of pissed off because he wanted to be a jeweler and he's got paws and no opposable thumbs. So you know he's telling Jimmy, "What what are you you know, what are you complaining about?" <laughs> it's all about perspective. Exactly. Well, you get a certain amount of perspective in a limited palette of animals in the city. I mean, you know, you're not not getting you know singing birds. <laughs> you're not getting lions well, and tigers you know, unless it, you're at the funny. park zoo. We we've done a little research, and it turns out that there's over a hundred species of animals in New York City. Besides now, the rats, how many and, species yeah. of rats? How many species of cockroaches? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's also the zoo. That's true. So you could never, you know, never have it, you know, never run out of different species. But I, I think the thing is that what what I'm sure is going to happen because Jim is not your typical animation writer. No, so he, he doesn't think in a cartoon world. He thinks in you know a world full of dimension and personas. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to come to think of Tony the Golden Retriever and Fritz the Squirrel and Buttercup the Police Horse. 
who tries to commit suicide every week as <laughs> as real. You know, it's going to be the next Kramer and Elaine, or you know, it's going to be really dimensionalized characters. I think, and and this is what I think has never been done before. I think that there's, uh, you know, of course we all love Brian the dog on on Family Guy, mm-hmm. but it's still that's pretty cartoony. And here, I think the angst and the 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 kind of relationship that these animals are going to have with Judy Stones is really going to be engaging. Well, they have uh, the the characters appear to be uh, developed and, and have real backstories. You know, it's not just uh, uh, it's not just window decoration. You know, right, so. right. So the, the the two pigeons that that we talked about. Uh, Gloria is uh, a born again. So when I say they proselytize him, they not only proselytize him about you know get, getting back on on his horse, so to speak, but they also you know try to evangelize him. And so we'll we'll probably explore where that you know where does that come from? Where does her her backstory come from? And and that's the other thing that's really great about uh, a writer like Jim Manos coming into this genre uh, into this medium. He's going to bring a process of creative that is going to allow us to develop these characters both backwards and forwards. You know, it's funny. I, when I skimmed the uh, the bios at first, I said, "Oh, you know, Giovanni's, uh, you know, Dexter or something." Really, I, I was thinking Dexter's lab. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, it's Dexter. Yeah. I've often thought. It's that Dexter from Dexter. Dexter's lab grew up to be Dexter from Dexter. This would explain a great deal, <laughs> including the goofy sister. I think that's fanfic. <laughs> I think it should be fanfic. Yeah, it's um no, it's but that's a very you know, harsh background for for someone really writing animation. That, but that's you know that I think it's just going to make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's you know, and and I think anytime you can overcome that challenge, like when you read the first line of a book or uh, you see the first scene of a, of a movie and you say, well, how is this going to work out? I think that's the same thing that really turns me on as a producer is to see uh, a guy who I can't quite figure out how is this going to work out. And, uh, you know, Jim's got a very sharp sense of humor, but it also can be very dark at times, as you might imagine. So I think that being able to put this into an animated series is, you know, a lot of people are really interested to see how that's going to turn out. Yeah, and how are they going to see it? Let's turn for a moment to your you know, proposed distribution. You were looking at staying outside the studio system and outside the right. normal channels. Right, right. So the thing is, is that... And, you know, it's great to be able to produce for a, a big network, and uh, you know, I come from a a, a a history of producing for just a handful of networks where they had millions and millions of viewers. But now, I think we're going to a stage where we have, you know, a thousand networks, and we have uh, each network has thousands of viewers. Or millions of networks and thousands of viewers. So the and distribution system, as as Hollywood got uh, uh, starting around 1950 or so, it started be- started to become far more granular. Yeah. So yeah, and it's been on a, it's been on a granular now. slide. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing because uh, the the there are more channels of distribution now than ever. I just uh, spent the last two days at the American Film Market in Santa Monica here. Mm, that must be and, very different than it used to be. 
Yes, it is. It's uh, it, it's it, it's it's very different in that there's you know every country in the world is participating, and the films are more global and yet more niche. You can go from a you know animated Snow Queen to a, a thriller you know with uh, blood all over the one sheet. Um, and you know you can't really say where where the film comes from until you you know go inside the suite and, and meet the people. Um, but the other thing that was really interesting, and maybe this is where you were headed, is that the mechanism for distribution for all of these films is significantly different. So that whereas before the basically the the traditional way to release a film would be you go from a theater and then it would sell to TV. Then, then we had, you know, home video and DVD, the DVD business. So you go from theater to DVD to TV. Now you've got home video. You go from theater to uh, electronic sell-through, i.e., iTunes, Google Play, and then you go to subscription video on demand, like Netflix, and then from there you go to TV and VOD, and then finally it ends up on YouTube. So you have all of these different ways of, of reaching your audience, and depending on what your business model is, you can help finance the program, you can distribute the program, so that whether it's crowdfunding or whether it's just uh, you know, your own VOD site, um, you know, it's really a challenge. The challenge is still the same, finding an audience. So what the networks have done in their great history is they've conglomerated a huge number of eyeballs into a network and they choose the shows that they think will will be interesting to that large number of eyeballs and now what you have finally is creators bringing their creation directly to the audience and amalgamating a smaller group but maybe a more engaged and committed group of fans who really want to see a particular creative and and that's where we are with Jimmy Stones. Well, and this lets uh, this lets the audience have greater access to the things they really want to see, instead of just uh, you know the next, uh, I don't yeah. know, and the yeah. next the next Baywatch or the next right. uh, Survivor. Right. I mean know. the the networks. It's interesting when you look at how the network business works. It's not always the largest audience that is the most valuable. Uh, advertisers sometimes are willing to pay more for a more engaged or targeted audience. So with something like Jimmy Stones, what we're hoping is that we can get, you know, 100,000 people to pay a couple of dollars each because they really do want to see how how you take a creative person like Jim Manos and bring his dark sensibility into an animated world where the animals have the dimensionality of, you know, the same people that you might see otherwise in a Dexter or a, uh, you know, there is a certain sick sensibility we have for wanting to see that, but I think nevertheless we do. Now these are the ones that grew up on The Simpsons and Dexter, right? (laughs) Exactly. So the crowdfunding campaign, uh, you're not not using one of the big standards. You're not using Kickstarter or Indiegogo. You have found found a different platform and... uh, uh, the crowdfunding is going through a specific domain name. And what what is the domain? Uh, JimmyStonesTV.com. JimmyStonesTV.com. And we well, that's, went... that'll be easier to remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, are you are so. you going for uh, funding to do a season? Uh, 
the pilot or what what is it that you're trying to reach out for we we want to make um uh, 10 episodes, 10 mm-hmm. three-minute episodes, enough to show people what they could expect from the world of Jimmy Stones. Uh, obviously, it's not enough to sort of establish something as a, a surefire hit, but we believe that by creating a, a small core group of following with our Kickstarter-funded episodes, mm-hmm. that we'll be able to prove to another platform, a bigger platform, that the show would work the way that that we envision it without making the kind of creative compromises that you have to make in order to hit that medium spot for the larger audience through through some gatekeeper. And you've had a lot of experience with exactly that problem as the producer of The Simpsons for some years. Yes, although The Simpsons actually is probably, to a certain extent, a bad example because with creators like Jim Brooks, Sam Simon... Uh, Matt Groening behind it. They they had the ability to, particularly Jim Brooks, you know, mm-hmm. Oscar-winning director of broadcast news, in terms of endearment, War of the Roses. Here's a guy who pretty much says this is what we're doing, and he doesn't really get notes. So yeah, well, think, they're the 500-pound gorilla of the Fox Network. They're not yes. going to get flushed anytime right, soon. Right, exactly. <laughs> Whereas I was talking with an executive who was working on a, a brand new cartoon for Adult Swim, and I won't mention the, the show um, because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but he said they they think that they should just do a TV show based on the notes that they get from Stairs and Practices. <laughs> uh, and I have to watch my how my language because some of it, but it's like, can you make sure that the blank is covered when the blank does blank? You know, and it's like... You know, so so now I'm not even weighing in on whether or not it would be funny or that it is creative or whatever. But the point is, is that cartoonists and, and creators are so sharp and so quick with some of the jokes. And there's so many different ways to tell a joke when you're dealing with animation. And to get a watered down version, I think, you know, in a day where, you know, a day and age where you can, anybody can just dial up anything on their you know, on their browser. I don't know. It, it seems like, you know, why not let the audience uh, decide, you know, whether they like it. If an audience doesn't like a show because it's got um, too much uh, swearing or too much sexuality, then, then let them vote with their, you know, with their viewership, just like they would on anything else. I, I think that that shouldn't become you know, the this, this censorship of what is appropriate in a standards and practices sense, or even from a group of executives saying this doesn't represent our brand creatively. Um, you know, and, and like I said, they, they've, they've spent the time and the money to amalgamate the viewership, so it is their brand to do that with, and I respect mm-hmm. that, and I, you know, make shows for that broad audience, but I think there's also room for shows like Jimmy Stone's that, uh, you know, well, actually... To be honest, our view is that Jimmy Stones would attract a broad audience, but I think we just want to prove it. Well, I, and and you deserve the chance to. And what you were saying uh, about the uh, the censorship aspects—that's uh, always been with us, though. I, they had to pull out the the elderly man River cut of from uh, Stan Freeberg all those years ago. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it's true. Uh, I. Uh, I I had uh, lunch with Phil Roman, who um, mm-hmm. I worked for for ten years, and he's a 
uh, you know, legendary animator, was an assistant animator at Disney and directed all the Peanuts specials and we did Garfield and a lot of shows and worked with him on The Simpsons as well. But he told me a story that they were, it was back in the days when they were doing uh, the, um, the, the shorts for, for Disney and they had a, uh, I'm sorry, for I think Warner Brothers, Correct me if I got my history wrong here, but he, they got a call from a, a theater that had received the first print of a brand new short uh, somewhere in the Midwest, and they said, we can't show this. D did you see this? And in those days, sometimes the prints would go directly to the theaters. They may not have seen it, and it, it turns out it was Snow White and the Zeban Dwarves, which uh, was censored and you know really has never been exhibited since then. You can find it on YouTube, though. But I guess that's a different sort of censorship than what we're talking about. Well, it I, is and it isn't. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say that, that censorship has a different goal now than it, uh, than it did uh, 20 years ago. As you were saying, uh, you know, the, yeah. the big television networks um, have to very carefully protect their investment in building that audience. And they can't, they can't, uh, they can't afford to have people just walk away in mass and pick something else. But with a more granular distribution system, that's less important than it was. And you can, uh, you can attract an audience who wants to see your stuff uh, and let them make up their own minds as to whether or not that content is appropriate for them to view. Right, whereas, right. whereas the, the, the big television studios couldn't afford to, to allow the viewers to make that decision for themselves. Well, there was an issue la just last week where there was an adult drama programmed right after the Peanuts special, <laughs> and you go straight from Charlie Brown to a rather ex as explicit a sex scene as you could get right. on a network. And, uh, you know, it, it's not good for the network because you, you lose all your market share in one swell foop, and it certainly wasn't good for the parents who had to explain to their children right, why they were right. turning on the TV off so fast. Well, it's like well, a, a double feature I saw in a Baldwin Hills movie theater once. Uh, I was I didn't see it there, but I was driving by and uh it was uh Snoopy Come Home and The Evil Dead. <laughs> I think well, that wasn't you know, a double they, feature, sweetie. I think there were probably one was, was a matinee the, and it then It was both on the marquee. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you well go from one, one theater to the next. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, the the um, you know the the television business is a global business now. So uh, I I produce and and meet with uh, partners from all over the world. And the joke about the U.S. television business is you can murder your next door neighbor, you just can't sleep with them. <laughs> if all they did yes. was sleep, uh, yeah. Well, but yeah. bum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, there you go. I mean, it's the. The whole the whole system of uh, determining who gets to watch what and why, and and uh, and who makes those decisions has changed so much. Uh, I think uh, due to the changes in the in distribution and the granularity of it has to be a little crazy making. I mean, because you now no longer have to you can no longer depend on a certain number of eyeballs. Just right. being there for you to yeah. try your shtick out. Yeah, on. but you get higher quality eyeballs. Does that make any sense? You may you uh, may yeah. get thousands instead of millions, but those thousands are going to worship you. That's you know? true. You you people are are watching you now because they want to, not because there's nothing else on. And that is that, the last of our worries these days. Yeah, 
the um, it is it is definitely, and I think as a creator, it's in, in the one on the one hand, it's um, a greater opportunity, but uh, as a as a producer, where you do need a certain amount of critical mass to get something made at a certain level of quality, it's it is a challenge when you're starting from scratch on every project to aggregate the number of eyeballs that you need. So there is a you know there is a double edged sword there. So have you been experiencing this directly with this project or, or has it has it just sort of ignited and started taking off on its own? It's been amazing. People uh there hasn't been a person that we have pitched the show to that hasn't said god I love that. I I can't wait to see it. Uh at the same time um when we pitched it to a couple of networks we got wow. We really love this, but we're not doing that type of show right now. So you know, it's not it's not such you know. We I, I kind of referenced censorship a moment ago, but I, I'd say it's 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 more than just uh, it's it's a little bit more insidious than that because if someone says, look, we're just not going to put a show on where the animals talk to a you know boozing checked out suicidal alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> Come on, I want to be I a mean, pigeon. Geez, where is Doctor Doolittle when you need him? Right. Yeah, I was uh, that that thought crossed my mind when yeah, I saw you the know, show description. There, there is that. I mean, it's it's Doctor Doolittle, which was like deeply racist and, <laughs> and confusing. Well, but but so so what happens now is that you know, and I love to give this example. There's a, a scene in in one of the episodes of Jimmy Stones where Jimmy is he's uh, he's decided to take on a he takes on a series of menial jobs right so on this one episode he's taken on the job of the ticket taker at the carousel in central park so he's sitting there on the bench doing the worst job he could possibly do not paying any attention to it and clip clop clip clop comes a a, ho- a policeman on horseback and it turns out Jimmy's friend is Rudy, the the cop, who's on the back of the horse. So Rudy says, "Yeah, what's going on? You know, how, you know, how's tricks?" And and while he's talking to him, the horse kind of looks at Jimmy Stones. Camera cuts to the horse. The horse says, to "Jimmy Stones." He looks looks back at the carousel. The little ponies on the with the poles stuck through him. He goes, "It's kind of creepy, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Jim, and Jimmy's like, "What? What? You talking to me?" Yeah, yeah, I'm talking to you. He's a little this jerk on my back. You, you think I like riding around here with this? You think you got problems? I got this fat, fat beep, uh, riding around on my back all day. Here, here I, here I am, this proud black Mustang roaming free, and then I get captured by these guys, and now my name is Buttercup. Think how that feels. And Jimmy, Jimmy's like, and mean, meanwhile, the friend, is still talking. Is still talking to Jimmy, and Jimmy's got this three-way. So it's kind of like the in the House of Cards, where the where the rest of the action sort of is back, you know, pushed back, and and so Jimmy can actually do a take to camera and say something to the audience, breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. to say, "Can you believe this?" And so then the horse says, "You know what? That's it. I'm out of here." And the horse takes off and runs full speed. The cop falls off, and the horse smashes its head into the brick wall and kills itself. And, uh, and, you know, what but he's we, back next week. Yeah, but he's back next week. That's right. So it, it's <laughs> I want to binge watch these this is, now. This is like, oh my God, they killed Kenny. Except yeah, with, yeah, yeah. except it, with it, hooves. 
it turns out that there's a certain percentage of horses that do uh, do attempt to commit suicide because they're so unhappy with their uh, situation. So, so Jim Jim doesn't make anything up. He claims he claims it's all from research. Wow. So, so my point is, you take great. that to a network, and they're you know you're going to get a network executive saying, you know. Our our research shows a lot of our readers really, or a lot of our viewers really like horses. Can we can not we not the have horse... the horse do that? Yeah. yeah. Can he just be really upset? You know, and so it just kind of it's like Jim doesn't want to. You know, you know, Which writers takes, like Jim yeah. don't want to give up that kind of creative control. Well, no, and I and I, I can see why. Right. You know, because there's right. there's there's a whole point to it. Right. Now, if, if, if he's hired to, to work on someone else's show that they've created and their vision is, you know, something that fits what the, you know, then that's fine. He's, he's writing on a show right now called South of Hell uh, for We, and, and it's a pretty dark show, but, um, you know, they're, they're, they've got the fit. So, so we're, we're planning, and we also have uh, an offer from a, a, a network uh, another small network that wants us to do some webisodes for them. So Ooh, yeah. I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of Jimmy Stones in the near future. Good. Well, and The Simpsons started out in in much the same way, actually. Uh, well, it was I, the interstitials I, in the Tracy Ullman show. That's a that's yeah, actually interstitials. A great, yeah, that's a great point. And I, you know, I can't believe that I've sort of forgotten that in this in the in the uh, discussion we've been having lately about doing these webisodes. But you're right. They did. They started as you know thirty second, one minute interstitials on the Tracy Ullman show, and you just got a glimpse of where the show could go as a series, and it was more than enough for people to to uh, to grab hold. Yeah, and it was. I think it's. A, I think it's a great parallel because that's exactly what you're trying to do. Yes, you're taking the same is. approach. I think the bar is higher now in mm-hmm. terms of establishing a brand new animated series because the Simpsons, you know, was so groundbreaking then it, nothing like it had ever really been seen, I guess since the Flintstones. Um, and so now there is a, a great deal of animation out there, but the, the good news is that there are more fans than ever. So I think that you're, you're right that, uh, should anybody say, well, how can you, find an audience with just doing short webisodes, I think, there you go. You don't have to look any further than the longest-running sitcom in the history of television. Not just animated sitcom. Right. Half-hour comedy sitcom, period. Three cameras and a couch, that sort of thing. (laughs) Exactly. A couch gag. Yeah. They do have a couch. So um, once once these things are done, uh, and you'll have... uh, you'll have uh, 10 three-minute episodes. Right. So the next thing is to uh, to see what the public does with this and, and how right. they like it. And, right, and right. Well, I think there are certain um, – I'm, I'm actually – there's certain analytics that are pretty well established now on the digital platforms I, like YouTube. Uh, you know, if you get – 10, 10 likes for every dislike, uh, something like that. Uh, you pretty much know you have something that could work if it gets enough eyeballs. Um, I'm working right now with a company called Mondo Media, mm-hmm. and we're producing some animated movies, 80-minute versions of their three top cartoons, so Happy Tree Friends, Dick Figures, and Deep Space 69. So these are all currently seen as shorts <laughs> on Mondo Media. 
Even the title, see, the titles make you laugh. Oh, that's funny. I, I've heard of Mondo Media before because of Happy Tree Friends. I had not right. heard the title Deep Space 69. It's funny. <laughs> Deep Space 69 is just a buddy picture. It's Judd Apatow meets Spaceballs oh meets Star God. Wars. Oh, my God. The Mile High Club was only the beginning, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, there's it's, a long it's, line. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, these are funny shows that have millions and millions of views. In fact, Happy Tree Friends has well over a billion views. That, uh, so, which is so, a star- and I've seen some of it, and it's it's like cute little animals dying in the most horrific, gruesome ways, right. and they do it every episode. Right, and they come every back for more. Time. Yeah, and they come back for more. It's, and it's, it's an extreme version of Looney Tunes. It is, with except with with uh, splintered bones and blood spraying everywhere and decapitations and and you know it's going to happen but yeah. you're still you're still surprised and you enjoy it every episode so we're going to do an 80 minute long version where wow. the characters will really get into some stories with beginning middle and end and be told in a slightly different format and then and then dick figures is like a bromance you know it's uh, red and blue who go on adventures, and uh, they already did one movie, actually, which was quite successful. They raised uh, over 300000 on a Kickstarter and produced a 75-minute movie and sold it through all the digital channels, and it was so successful, it, it, it spawned now this three-movie series that we're planning on doing. Oh, my God. That is amazing. Well, that is, then you, you better start writing the, the Jimmy Stones movie now, then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you, you were must talking be planning, earlier about you must be planning ahead. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> like, if you ever look at a production schedule for for these sort of things, it looks like uh, an assembly line of how you're going to build a thousand cars by the end of the year because you know you got to literally start you know one of them every five minutes in order to get it to to come out together because it takes nine months to to produce one 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 episode. Wow. Well, wow. I had no idea. I mean, I, I've, uh, I've worked in the animation industry myself. I was at Rhythm and Hughes for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and but, uh, and lost the job when everyone else did. Right. Yeah, you, wow. you remember the, the, the Life of Pi thing where... Of course. You know, it's they horrible. Won, they won the Oscars. They won the BAFTAs. And at the same time, they, they were they won in the London. pink slips. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were... you know, it, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, in fact, I was talking with a producer uh, who had, had worked on some of that. And we were, I was just saying that that's, you know, that's the difference between having a business model where it's thought through and, and not. And, you know, for the fact that Rhythm and Hughes had all that talent and all of that, you know, out, amazing output, but because essentially they negotiated a bad deal, the the talent ended up having to go elsewhere, and and we all lost, you know, what what would have come next from that collection of uh, really talented people. Of course, they'll probably all, you know, all, all find other jobs, but it's a shame that uh, that the system didn't well, but, know, uh, didn't prevail. Uh, some have, some haven't. Yeah, I I'm friends with a lot of them, and about a third of them left the industry completely, so they yeah. were just lost. Yeah, that, lost that's, to the industry. It's you know, it's uniquely American because the rest of the world has subsidies and incentives that support the industry and support the arts in ways that allows it to continue. Uh, you know, 
incentivizing people to come and do the work there. And here in this country, we have some of the most talented artists in the world, but unless the, the business goes along with it, you know, you end up with a rhythm and hues. And so those people, probably a third of them left the business and a third of them moved to other countries where the industries are supported and they could, you know, work as, as well. And, and some of them did. And a lot of them went to, uh, a lot of them went to Canada and they yeah. got, they got production jobs up there and then they got yeah. laid off up there and stranded. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, but the, the, problem with rhythm and hues i think was in large part that they really didn't have they weren't developing any of their own intellectual property mm, i mean they were yeah. tr they were trying, they were trying. But right right the it's stuff they were coming up the stuff they were coming up with was i'm sorry guys it was ridiculous you know well the hip-hop rabbit was kind of cute uh, basketball animal team you know, who you know Except done a lot worse than than the Bugs Bunny picture. Yeah, Space Jam did. Ellie, yeah, Space Jam right. made it work, but this didn't. This was no Space Jam. Well, it didn't have the benefit of familiar faces animated and otherwise. Right. You know, and you know. well, and they they just they couldn't get the backing they needed to 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 do the development properly, and uh, they didn't own any of their own material, and they were essentially a service house. Right. And what happened in their case was that they had, I think, uh, four or five contracts. Uh, they had a couple of uh, 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 negative pickups that they were doing where they were supposed to share in the profits and the right. creative accounting made all the profits go away. Yeah. Yeah. And that happened two or three times in a row. And then uh, another studio pulled the plug on one of the other projects they were doing and all of a sudden bankrupt. Right. Well, well, you you got to stay with your strengths. But but I think, you know, if you want an analogy, and I love to make analogies, can you imagine Tom Cruise on the set of a movie, and they're not done with the movie, and Tom Cruise says, well, sorry, my contract says that I get to leave yeah. on this day, and it's not my fault you didn't finish shooting the movie, therefore I'm leaving. So what do they do in that situation? They call his agent, and his agent's a smart person and is going to mm -hmm. negotiate a higher fee and, and a better percentage. And, and every time his movies have success, then they up the deal and make a better deal. So, so they're constantly negotiating for what the talent is doing. But I think one of the things that happened at Rhythm and Hughes is that they just went along with it because they were so passionate about the work. And instead of thinking about taking care of business – they were thinking about the, just the creative, and you need to be able to do both to survive in Hollywood. They they were actually uh, taking contracts that they knew they were going to lose on just to keep the doors open, right? You right. Know, just, so, just to keep the people in the chairs, right? And, and they weren't they weren't negotiating good deals, right? Uh, for right. whatever for whatever reason, they either weren't doing it or they weren't able to do it. Uh, the pressures were. Uh, well, I think you said it a moment ago that they, if it's just a service business model, then they're pretty much always going to find someone else to do it cheaper and quicker and, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe better. But, they had, they had uh, a good run. They did it for 25 years, 20, right. 26 years. I think the most amazing example of creative studio that was able to really leverage their creativity is Pixar, right? Mm -hmm. They bought oh, yes. Disney. Oh yes, but they did have Steve Jobs on their side. Yes, which which helped. Steve Jobs, Stephen Catmull. Yeah, yes. Stephen Catmull, without whom the Catmull spline wouldn't exist. 
you know, is a brilliant mathematician, and and that in turn is used in every piece of animation software on the entire planet. Is it? Yeah. And this well, is I, this I'm children is why you study. There, there, there wouldn't there wouldn't be computer animation without without uh, Catmull. Right, but uh, but I was thinking more from uh, you know monetizing. No, that's true. That's I, that, I agree with you completely there. I, I say this to to the artists that I work with all the time. Uh, I don't, ex- and maybe this is why I'll never be Steve Jobs. But I say I don't expect you to finance uh, Paramount, or I don't expect you to finance Fox. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if I'm going to ask you to do some work. Then we're going to try to pay you, you know what what it's worth, and you know there's a res- certain respect and dignity that goes along with that. But it's not easy because people come to me all the time and ask me to produce for ridiculous for less and less, you know. So uh, I think I think the, that the other part of this is that uh, that the, this granular distribution model has created more and more opportunity to produce. But the resources available to produce some of this content is less and less, and therefore people are having to find ways to do it for less in order to to continue to work. Well, and that's that's the problem with uh, the un, the the increase in the granularity of the entire business. Right. It the granularity has increased, uh, distributing the risk to uh, smaller and smaller companies, but the money pool has not increased. Um, I think there's probably as much, if not more, being spent on content, but it's, you know, you have guys like PewDiePie who has the largest YouTube following and, you know, somebody like that didn't even exist as a content provider 10 years ago. Well, and his, his, uh, production budget is (laughs) infinitesimal. You know, exactly. and it's, it's the 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 ratio is way out of balance there, yeah. and and uh, it the fact that that kind of thing is possible means that there's content out there that costs virtually nothing, that gets a, a very high profit for the amount of money that they put right. into it, which in turn increases the pressure on on producers like you. It uh, does. It does. But I, you know, I I also don't want to you know just just complain about it because this sort of democratization of the tools of production Mm -hmm. also benefits us where we're now able to produce episodes of Jimmy Stones at a fraction of the budget without losing some quality that we, you know, it would have been impossible, you know, 10 years ago. So I think that for the people who just want to do it and who are, have a vision, I think that it's, there's a great, a great opportunity here. I I agree with you. There are there are a lot of people out there who really just want to be animators and and work in work in the industry just because they love it. And right. uh, the the trick is finding those finding those little providers now because it is so granular. It becomes a real mouse hunt. Yeah. Trying to find the people uh, because the networking opportunities are well. They're different, and you really have to work at it now. You didn't. Yeah. You didn't so much when when uh, you worked in a studio with with two thousand other people. Right. Right. No. I mean, it, you know. You, you now know, because a studio you... is like twenty people tops. 
you know because you've been there. I mean, sure. the the creative energy and, and chemistry of a of a place like Rhythm and Use is just uh, unimaginable. Um, they, you know, studios like that do exist. They just don't exist that much here in Los Angeles. So, how big a production team are you uh, are you planning to use for the creation of of uh, we'll use stones? Probably somewhere between ten and twelve folks to to do these webisodes and we'll we'll have a schedule that affords them enough time to do it mm -hmm. um, we may co-produce with uh, you know some of the other territories where there are tax credits and incentives to help make our budget go along a longer way mm -hmm. uh, but in the end uh, you know creative people are creative people so I I, I don't I I cherish and appreciate everybody who works on our shows, whether they're working here in Los Angeles or in uh, Mumbai. And the great thing about uh, the great thing about launching a production now is that it is technically possible to have half your crew in Los Angeles and a third of them in France and a third of them, you know, well, yes. and, and the remainder in uh -huh. Mumbai or wherever. Right, I was, right. I was just about to add too many thirds and add up to more yeah. than 100% there. Well, but, right. uh, so, didn't you ever see the producers where he financed 150%? Yes. yes. <laughs> so now he's got to produce it. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, you're right. It's, you know, um, I mean, modern the, technology makes it possible to do something like that. And you couldn't does. have done you couldn't have done that even 10 years ago. Uh, and, the, and, you know, the other thing is, is that the tools are so much greater now that you can also revise it. And, you know, just like they say, great writing is rewriting, uh, great, great animation is being able to call retakes and, and revise it when it doesn't work. Yeah. And so the digital technology allows for that. And to be able to uh, just visually communicate from one person to the next, even over great distances and show them exactly what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, in, instead yep. of just describing it verbally the way you used to have to do it. Exactly. Via fax. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, or, or, or worse, new Telex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, or Pony Express. Can you imagine sending retakes by Pony Express? <laughs> Pony Express was out about the time that film was coming in, and maybe that's why. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have to deal with that, thank God. Thank goodness. Uh, yes. <laughs> so you've uh, your production must have your production techniques must have changed so much. Over the last twenty-five years, working on oh yeah, you've been working well, on The Simpsons since since how long? From the beginning? Well, I started in. I worked on the second season, uh, so that was back in nineteen ninety-one, I believe, is when I first started. Maybe ninety-two. Um, and so, like for example, uh, when we were producing the show, we would do uh, an animatic, which was mm -hmm. basically shooting the storyboard on film with a down shooter, mm -hmm. sending the film out to the lab, not even making a print, just getting the negative back, transferring it to a videotape, and then showing the videotape to the writers so that mm -hmm. they could rewrite the stories and the jokes that weren't working. There was no such thing as a computer that you could scan the image into and then digitize the dialogue. So we actually tried in probably about 1994 with some help from Apple to to um, to scan a storyboard into the computer, and uh, it, the computer couldn't run fast enough, and uh, Apple basically threw their hands up. Uh, another, and, and now you can take a storyboard and you can draw it paperlessly through a piece of software and drop your dialogue in 
you know, with, right from the reporting session and essentially create an animatic in a fraction of the time and make your changes live right there in front of you. Um, another, another advancement that occurred during The Simpsons is there's an episode, and I don't remember the name of it, but where Homer goes into the real world and he comes out as a, he comes in as a 3D character. And we had, uh, PDI, which is now, uh, is now DreamWorks, but mm-hmm. we had PDI do that sequence as a as a test. Yeah, that uh, that one is uh, actually noteworthy because it's it's uh, in the history books for computer animation. I mean, if you uh, oh, okay. if you if you study it, that episode comes up. Yeah, well, we were all like, you know, how's this going to work out? Because there really wasn't much of a you know a history of doing any kind of computer animation, and I remember uh, Richard Rainus, you know coordinating with PDI and and making that all happen and uh, it, it was you know a fantastic episode of course yeah I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go back and look that one up you know it actually and the visuals kind of stand up today even they do it's amazing yeah well and it's in part that's due to the simple character design the simple and distinct True. character design so it really lends itself to that sort of thing and and you could get away with it because you know they're not textured <laughs> right, right, right. They're just sort of this one diffuse uh, yellow color. And, That's true. And away it worked. Goes. It worked. So, um, let's see. Your crowdfunding campaign currently doesn't have an end date. I mean, it's you're you're uh, you're hoping to get your production money by by one what point in the calendar? Well, we I think we have about a. 11 days left to the 30-day campaign. Uh, one of the things that's great about CrowdTilt is that you're able to extend your campaign if you uh, have the support and you can control the uh, the um, the timing on it. So mm-hmm. we have, like I say, about 11 or 12 days left and uh, whatever we get, we'll use for the production and we'll take it as far as we can. Um, and we will, you know, hopefully reward those that have supported us. And of course, we're hoping for more. Um, oh, we got to kick into this. Yeah. JimmyStonesTV.com. JimmyStonesTV.com. And we'll make sure that that, uh, that gets listed on the Krypton Radio announcement yeah. article for this episode, which will air this weekend, by the way. Oh, great. So uh, we'll give you that information uh, directly so that you can link to it in your social media. And so it'll be of some use to you. And the the other thing that I would say that we're going to do with the JimmyStonesTV.com is not only are we working with the crowdfunding, but we're also going to be updating the site with the creative developments. And and so I just had actually a conference call today with uh, Jim and we were talking about one of the upcoming episodes and all I can say is someone will die. Oh, gosh. Well, Buttercup. (laughs) Obviously Buttercup. I can't say. I can't say. (laughs) I I can't say. It'll be a surprise. That's all I can say. Maybe Buttercup won't die and that's the surprise. Oh, my God, they killed the horse. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Schultz, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. You've been great. Uh, Great questions, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You have just heard episode 78 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 15th, 2014. 
Our guest has been Bill Schultz, Emmy-winning producer of The Simpsons. We have been discussing his new independent animation series project, Jimmy Stones. To find out more about it, visit jimmystonestv.com. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio Station Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on November 16th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>